We have monosaccharides, disaccharides, trisaccharides, and so uh, the ones that we usually say are monosaccharides, disaccharides, and polysaccharides. Prefix mono means one, di means two. Examples of monosaccharides, glucose, fructose, galactose, all of them with the same formula, means they are isomers. The disaccharides, they are monosaccharides joined by a covalent bond. And we have examples of disaccharides, sucrose, maltose, and lactose. We give them a specific names because they're usually present as result of metabolism. When we digest, when we eat carbohydrates, we break them down into disaccharides, and those are the most common. Lactose is present, is present in the milk. Uh, sucrose is a table sugar. And we have some examples of the chemical compositions of these compounds, glucose, galactose, and fructose. Notice that these are hexoses, the glucose and galactose. The fructose is also in the hexose but the rings are expressed like a pentagon. It's because of the nature of the covalent bonds. There's a covalent bond here at the level of this carbon, and that makes a difference to express in a ring of five sides like this. But it doesn't mean that it's a pentose, it's a hexose, just a covalent bond that changes. Don't get confused by that. All these three are hexoses of six carbons. These are the disaccharides that we mentioned in the previous slide. Sucrose, lactose, and maltose. You should remember what is the composition of them. Like sucrose is glucose plus fructose. Lactose, galactose plus glucose. And maltose is two glucose molecules together. When we eat carbohydrates and we start breaking them down by the action of enzymes, what we find in the intestines usually disaccharides, the ones that are previously to the absorption stage in the small intestine are disaccharides, but they will have to be broken down into monosaccharides because the monosaccharides are the only ones that are absorbed completely into the blood. And it has to be glucose. As we will see when we get to that point. We absorb glucose to the blood. So the importance to remember this is when we get to the digestive system and study the physiology of the digestion, we'll mention these names again, and we should be familiar with them and their composition. We talk about lactose intolerance, the presence of uh, uh, lactose in the, in the small intestine. We should have enzymes to break down that lactose. If not, we have lactose intolerance. And the polysaccharides, long molecules, many units of glucose, and they are described as starch, glycogen, and cellulose. Starch is uh, 
form of storage in plants. Glycogen is a storage in animal cells. This is what we have in the liver and muscles, the glycogen. That's how we store carbohydrates, sugars, for our own consumption. When the cells need fuel, we take it from there. It's glycogen in liver and muscles. Cellulose is part of plants. We don't digest that. That's commonly known as fiber present in the vegetables that we eat. Composition of cellulose but still is a polysaccharide. It's just that we don't have enzymes to particularly degrade those in our digestive system. That's how a, a glycogen molecule looks like. Very long molecule, branched molecule, but all of them are um, units of glucose, all of them together. How we convert disaccharides to monosaccharides and vice versa. This is just some examples of them. For instance, if we consider this reaction on top, we have the disaccharide maltose, and that results of the combination of two molecules of glucose. But to happen, for this to happen, there must be a covalent bond established. And that happens at this point where we see the lighting, the highlighting. Two atoms of hydrogen and one oxygen are lost in order to establish a covalent bond here. And we have the molecular water here. So if we want to mix two molecules of glucose into maltose, that will result from this chemical reaction. Two glucose, two maltose, plus one molecule of water that comes out of the covalent bond has to be established there. That's why it's called dehydration synthesis, or dehydration reaction, because we are removing one molecule of water out of that uh, reaction. Same way for the sucrose in the example below. We make glucose plus fructose, and now the covalent bond is different, and that's why this sucrose has a different spatial configuration, as we see here. But still, two hydrogens and one oxygen has to be lost, have to be lost in dehydration reaction, dehydration synthesis. That's how the combination of monosaccharides turn into disaccharide. And if we want to revert the reaction, dissolve the disaccharides or digest the disaccharide, like what happens in the digestive system, we need an enzyme and water. We need to add water for this to happen, for the disaccharide turn into two monosaccharides. That's what happens in the digestive system, especially small intestine. Yes? Yeah, the disaccharide has to be, um, when we want to break it down into monosaccharides, we need to add a molecule of water. And that reaction is called hydrolysis because we are adding one molecule of water, and that water is going to break down 
the disaccharide, the covalent bond here. If we have an example of starch, which we saw is a long chain of glucose units, well, every glucose is joined to another glucose by means of covalent bonds. So every time we want to break down this long molecule, we'll start having this step-by-step. Step. We have water, and we break down, let's say, this four-unit carbohydrate here. We break it down into two maltose, two disaccharides. And they want to keep going. This maltose has to be still hydrolysis, so we can have two monosaccharides. Questions about the carbohydrates. These are the reactions that we need to remember the direction and be familiar with the names and compositions. Yes. comes in and what comes out. So the dehydration makes water? Dehydration, no, you're removing hydrogen and water from the molecule. And we end up with the molecule of water. Now regarding the other molecules, lipids. Long chain of carbohydrates again, but in this time, the chemical composition make these molecules hydrophobic, not soluble in water. There are many different types of lipids. The ones that are relevant, and we're gonna see them in cell membranes and uh, uh, physiologic processes like use of energy or blood coagulation. Um, there are many different types of lipids. Triglycerides is one of them, divided in fats and oils, depending on the composition, the state in the uh, room temperature. Triglycerides are composed by one molecule of glycerol and three molecules of fatty acids. That's why the name tri from three fatty acids and glyceride from glycerol. Fatty acids, the fatty acids are nonpolar hydrocarbon chains, and they have this carbonyl group at one end. That is the characteristic of the fatty acid. And they can be divided into types, saturated and unsaturated. The difference resides in that if there are double bonds, covalent bonds between carbons, that's what we call them unsaturated. But if there is just single pairs, single covalent bonds in the composition, they are called saturated. You can see this composition of triglycerides in terms of chemical 
uh, structures, glycerol plus three fatty acids, we end up with a triglyceride. We show in the when we want to make this molecule triglyceride again, we have to uh, always see the chemical reaction called dehydration. But in this case, three molecules of water result because we are adding three fatty acids to the chain of glycerols. We see the highlighters here. Those are hydrogens and uh, oxygens that are, are removed from the molecules, and we get three molecules of water. So we make triglycerides by dehydration synthesis. And the difference between saturated and unsaturated, if we see it in the chemical structure like this, the difference is the presence of these double covalent bonds in the skeleton, in the carbon skeleton of the molecule. And that's what we call, when we call it unsaturated fatty acid. And the word saturated refers to the saturation of hydrogens. If there are more pairs of electrons shared between carbons, then less hydrogens will be present in the molecule. That's why the word unsaturated, they are not so saturated with hydrogens. Instead of the saturated, they are full of hydrogens in all positions of the carbon. And that makes an important, a very important difference because this molecular structure will make the difference in terms of type of triglycerides that are formed. And later we'll see that they will have an impact on the, on the presence of some diseases or increased risk for cardiovascular disease and this type of problems. Everything resides in the nature, chemical nature of this molecule. When there is this covalent bond that makes an unsaturated, then we see the molecule will be bent like this. It's not a long chain, but it's bent. Like a different angle shows up here when there's a double covalent bond. And it's more about chemistry and spatial configuration. There are two forms, cis and trans, which you see different angles are determined here. That has a, another impact in the uh, composition of triglycerides that result from these unsaturated molecules. And the usual the popular knowledge, which is true, is uh, unsaturated are healthier than the saturated. That's the difference. Too much saturated will get deposited in the walls of blood vessels, increasing the risk for cardiovascular diseases, for instance. Why, why is that? Is that because saturated is harder to digest? Yeah, the, uh, we'll see later in cardiovascular that all these triglycerides are transported by uh, proteins in the blood, and they tend to be deposited in the walls of the blood vessels. Where the saturated, if they are saturated fatty acids, as part of those triglycerides, there will be more of these lipids deposited in the blood vessels. That's, that, that is the difference. <coughs> yes? Uh, does it matter like the source of uh, 
Yeah, it depends on different factors. It depends on what we find in the nature. It depends on the type of processing that these molecules go through. When we cook or we prepare different types of foods or meals, then uh, may change this composition. And uh, that sometimes makes a difference. So the other type of lipid is phospholipids, which you know it's present in the cell membrane. That makes the membrane hydro uh, have a hydrophilic and hydrophobic properties depending on where the phospholipids are. Another uh, importance of phospholipids is they are components of the surfactant substance. I think we mentioned this last time. The surfactant substance, which is in the lungs. Um, when we talk about surface tension of the water, we mentioned this. Well, the phospholipids are components of surfactant substance. That is the substance that makes the lung, uh, the air sacs of the lungs remain open when we breathe for the very first time. Um, very important, those are phospholipids. And this is the diagram that we use to represent the phospholipids with a polar head and non-polar tail. Polar head is where the phosphates are, phospholipid, and the tails are where the fatty acids are. We should remember about the phospholipids, polar head and non-polar tail, regardless of all the details of the chemical structure. Micelles and water. The diagram shows the polar heads that are hydrophilic, attracted to water. That's why it's surrounded by molecules of water. And all the nonpolar tails, they are in the very center of this micelle we call. Micelles is like the arrangement of the phospholipids in like a micro drop or droplet when facing water. When we try to dissolve a lipid in water, and there's phospholipids, we will see this micelles, like, like little drops. They will not dissolve with water, but they get like this arrangement. And we can just see it like, imagine the mixing oil and water, and you stir it and you can see like little droplets of fat in the, floating in the water. So, I'm sorry, the micelles are the blue? The micelles are, is the whole thing. The micelles are this formation that the phospholipids acquire when facing water. Steroids, also lipids. Cholesterol is the best represent, uh, the what best represents this type of molecule. Cholesterol is really important, but it may be very bad. We actually are able to produce all the cholesterol we need. The liver makes all the cholesterol we need. And why we need cholesterol? Well, we need cholesterol to make hormones like testosterone, estrogen, which are sex hormones, 
very important for the reproductive organs and reproductive cycles. They are made from cholesterol. Or vitamin D, which is important for absorption of calcium. Bile salts, component of the bile to digest the lipids. So cholesterol is really important. And as I said again, the liver, our liver is able to produce all the cholesterol we need. We don't need extra cholesterol in the diet. So we're not gonna die if we eat a free cholesterol diet. We are able to produce all the cholesterol we need. If we have an excess of cholesterol, then that will be bad because it will get deposited as long as the triglycerides and the walls of blood vessels and um, be bad for our health. And these are just chemicals, examples of composition of hormones to see how the cholesterol basic structure here can be recognized as part of the testosterone and estradiol, which are the sex hormones. Some words about proteins. Amino acids are the units. All of them in the long chain, we have a protein. There are some terms like peptides, polypeptides, in the same way as we say di monosaccharides or disaccharides, we say dipeptide, tripeptide, depending on how many amino acids we have in that chain. Proteins are usually long, long molecules, many units, many amino acids, all of them together. But that amino acid follows a sequence in each protein, and that sequence reflects another sequence, the sequence of DNA. Protein is actually the translation of the messages that the DNA contains. The proteins are built based on the plans, um, the blueprints that we have in the DNA. Amino acids, some of them are shown here. The basic structure of the amino acid, it has a carboxyl group and an amino group which contains nitrogen. That is the difference between carbohydrate, lipids, and proteins. Proteins contain nitrogen. And if we replace that R that we see on the very top, the functional group R, with any other group, we mentioned before some groups, then we will have different types of amino acids, like valine, tyrosine, arginine, cysteine, and aspartic acid. With all the highlighting area, is showing different groups of molecules that attach to the basic, basic composition of amino and carboxyl group. All the amino acids have that those two groups, amino and carboxyl group in both sides, and both ends. And that's why the name amino acid, because of these two groups. Now, to understand how a protein is arranged in, uh, in chemical space, primary structure, 
we define different structures, primary, secondary, tertiary, quaternary structure. How this is explained? Well, the primary structure talks about the sequence of amino acids that are in a protein. Again, dehydration synthesis. We can see that dehydration reaction here. We see single amino acids here. And to connect all of them, we remove three molecules of water. We got them here. So to make a protein, the amino acids combine in a dehydration reaction. Does a primary structure, I mean the sequence of amino acids, that in this graph we can see them right here, which is different representations for the amino acids. But what is the secondary and tertiary and quaternary? Well, actually what happens is the sequence of amino acids is so long, so long, that actually it doesn't ex exist as a long fiber. These amino acids, they have hydrogens. And those hydrogens, remember, and some molecules, like water, they are polar. They have partial electrical charge. And they will establish hydrogen bonds. If you notice here, these dotted lines. These are attractions in different parts of the molecule, the long chain of amino acids that have partial electrical charge. And so they start attracting to each other in different, different segments. So they can make, or these helixes, or these sheets, that's so long that like, we're talking about 50, hundreds of amino acids together. It's very hard to keep them in a long sequence. They will just attract to different parts of the molecule and will start making these structures. And even more, the helices, they will get attracted to different parts of the helices and will make like a tertiary structure, which is like, imagine a strip of uh, adhesive tape. You get a long segment like this size and you hold it in both ends, stretch it. What happens if you let one end go? If it's adhesive tape, usually it will start curling like this, and the adhesive part will get will stick to different segments. Now, if you do this, different parts of the adhesive tape will attract to other parts, and you'll get like a little ball, like a mess here. Can you straighten it out again? Can you stretch it again? Very hard. What you have to do is perhaps put it in hot water, and you dissolve it, and you can stretch it again. For those adhesive or additions that the tape has in different parts are kind of like the secondary and tertiary structure of a protein. They are attracted by hydrogens and different groups that have partial uh, electrical charge. And in the reality, actually, in uh, the proteins, they, are, they look like this. They look exactly like this. That's why we say this primary, secondary, tertiary to understand how we end up with a molecule like that. Now the next is quaternary. The quaternary just means there are more than one unit. Like in the case of hemoglobin, which is a protein that carries oxygen in the blood. 
there are four units. Four unit. It has four units, and each unit is shown like a tertiary structure. So many of them, two, three, or four units get together. We say that protein has a quaternary structure. So this is just to understand how the proteins are and what the denature of proteins are. The denature of proteins or the naturalization of proteins is the process by which we break down all those attractions. And we actually change the chemical structure in terms of spatial configuration. We may change the structure. Therefore, we change the function of some proteins. Usually we find proteins linked to molecules like carbohydrates or lipids, and we call them glycoproteins, lipoproteins. We see some examples, hormones, like glycoproteins. In cell membranes, we have lipoproteins, glycoproteins. Carrier molecules in the blood are lipoproteins, like the ones that transport triglycerides, cholesterol. Those are called conjugated proteins. Some functions of proteins to remember, structure of course. Enzymes are proteins, the ones that assist in chemical reactions. Antibodies, which are part of the immune system to neutralize bacteria or foreign particles, they are proteins. Cells have receptors in the membrane which are proteins, and carriers of different natures that help to transport substances in the cell membrane, across the cell membrane, or in the blood. Nucleic acids, DNA, RNA. The units in this case are called nucleotides, nucleotides, and they contain a pentose, five carbon sugar, phosphate group, and a nitrogenous base. The nitrogenous base is a compound that may be described as two types, pyrimidines and Purines or purines. What are those pyrimidines? Cytosine, thymine, uracil. We usually use just the letters, initials to name them, C, T, U. And the purines are guanine and adenine, which are usually named as G or A. The pentose sugar, the 5-carbon sugar, may be or deoxyribose or ribose. And that's why the name. Deoxy, if we talk about DNA, it contains deoxyribose. Deoxyribonucleic acid, that's the DNA. And if it contains the pentose ribose, it's RNA, ribonucleic acid. That's what it makes the difference. And there are other differences that we will see. The DNA contains deoxyribose, 
And we find up to four different types of nitrogenous base. One in thymine, cytosine, and adenine, G, T, C, A. And the oxyribose attached to the nitrogenous base will be linked by phosphate groups and forming a long chain, a long chain which is called the, the backbone of the molecule. We can see the structure here a little bit better. Five carbon sugar, phosphate group, and the nitrogenous base. The nitrogenous base may be one of these four, one in thymine, cytosine, and adenine. We see the pentose, and the phosphate groups are connecting all of these nucleotides. And in that way, they form this long chain of nucleotides. Only GTCA are found in DNA. But we say, when I say DNA, we say it's a double helix, double strand, because two of these are facing each other and getting a spatial configuration like a helix, thanks to the attractions of hydrogens from these two purines or uh, yeah, purines or pyrimidines or nitrogenous bases facing each other. You see the dotted lines, hydrogen bonds. Hydrogen bonds maintain the structure of the DNA as a double helix. But notice this. One in pairs with cytosine and thymine pairs with adenine. Why? Because there are three places where they can establish hydrogen bonds between one and cytosine. And there are only two places where hydrogens can establish uh, hydrogen bonds between thymine and adenine. That's the reason why they pair exactly to each other and in that particular way. There are many exercises in chemistry that are done in this way. G with C, A with T, and why G cannot pair with A because they don't match. There has to be three and the adenine has only two places to match with. If it happens, which may happen sometimes, we call that a mutation because it's not the way it's supposed to be. And that alters the sequence and it may alter the expression of the DNA. That's just another way to see this molecule of DNA arranged in a double helix with the sugar phosphate backbone and the complementary base pairing C with G or G with C, T and A or A and T. Only in that way. And the ribonucleic acid, similar to DNA, but ribose is present here, not deoxyribose. Single strand. And important difference, uracil instead of thymine. There is no T in RNA. Instead, there is a U for uracil. Because the difference is RNA, DNA.
deoxyribose DNA, ribose RNA, and thymine for DNA and uracil for RNA. The RNA is a molecule that we find it in different uh, places and performing different functions. There are three types, messenger RNA, transfer RNA, and ribosomal RNA. We'll see in the next part what is the difference between messenger RNA, transfer RNA, what is the function of them, and how they fit into the process of making proteins making proteins and expressing the information of the DNA. There are other molecules related with RNA, which contain nucleotides, these nitrogenous bases. There are ATPs, GTPs, cyclic AMP, CAMP, NAD, FAD, which work as coenzymes. We'll mention them in the metabolism part of um, um, glucose metabolism and energy, cellular respiration and all that. Questions, comments to this point? Okay, next week, if you notice, we have the first midterm. And uh, that midterm will cover everything we cover in the lectures. So according to the syllabus, it says chapter one to six. If we finish chapter six, fine, we cover everything. But if we don't finish, well, whatever we cover in the lectures will include, will be included in the in the midterm. Not necessarily on Thursday. We'll do something also before the lab, yeah, as we did last week. And most of these parts, especially the la I mean, the previous two chapters and this chapter also, most of it is review with chemistry and cell biology. Because for taking bi uh, physiology, you're supposed to know or take in chemistry and some biology um, uh, course. But we're just covering this in order to review, or if you're not familiar with this, or want a deep review, well, this is the beginning. So this part is for the cell. And we're gonna study some structures of the cell that will, be working with later. For example, when we do um, nervous system, we'll talk a lot about membranes. And we need to know about the transport mechanism across the membranes. When we do muscular tissue, when we do metabolism, we need to know the mitochondria, processes, enzymes, and all that. So. Plasma membrane, cytoplasm, organelles, and nucleus. So let's go ahead and talk a little bit about each or some of these structures. Starting with the plasma membrane. We just mentioned when we study phospholipids that they are the main component of the plasma membrane. Having a hydrophobic center where the polar and nonpolar tails are, as you see in this picture, the hydrophobic core, all the tails there, and the hydrophilic polar heads. They face or either to outside of the cell or the inside of the cell. And also we see also some other things like glycoproteins, 
glycolipids, which are complex molecules, a combination of proteins and carbohydrates, uh, lipids and carbohydrates, which will have different functions as we will see. Proteins, only proteins are also found in the membrane, some of them go in all the thickness from one side to another, and they are called um, integral proteins. And other proteins that are called peripheral, which are or either out or either in the inner side of the cell. Integral proteins, as uh, give an example, some of these integral proteins are carriers. They will transport substances across the membrane. Peripheral proteins are mostly part of the structure and give shape to the cell mostly. And besides other enzymatic functions also. As we mentioned here, the structural support, transport, these are functions of membrane proteins, enzymatic control of some processes, receptors, and self-markers for an immune system. All these proteins on the membrane, they are like flags, they are like labels, and they are different for every type of cell and for a different type of person. Our immune system recognizes these cells, I mean these receptors or markers on the cells, to distinguish which are our self cells, our own cells, and which cells may be strange. Like when we have a transplant of some organ, there's something called rejection. The immune system will reject strange cells because they are not recognized as our own cells. They are foreign. Even though they may be liver cells, not liver transplant, they are the same liver. But the receptors or markers are different. They're for someone else and not our own. And they are rejected. They are recognized by the immune system. Other components include carbohydrates, cholesterol. Cholesterol gives flexibility to the man, which is an important thing. Carbohydrates are bound to lipids or proteins. They work as antigens. What is an antigen? What's that? Close. What is an antigen? important to understand this, and we do this in the immune system, but an antigen is any molecule, any molecule that is capable of stimulate an immune reaction. Like some people is allergic to dust. Well, the dust is the antigen. There's a particle, molecule that is capable of stimulating an immune reaction in the body. Or 
if we get infected by a virus, we develop antibodies against those viruses. Those viruses are the molecules that are stimulating that immune reaction. Sometimes we have these words confused, antigen and antibody. The antigen is a molecule that stimulates the production of antibodies, yes, and the antibodies fight and neutralize the antigens. An important thing about the membrane of some cells is that ability to, to perform phagocytosis. Phagocytosis is the process by which some cells will engulf, eat foreign particles, viruses, bacteria, or molecules, and bring it in. Bring it in for different purposes, usually, but have to be destroyed, or they have to be used. Some complex, long molecules are taken by cells, by phagocytosis, they are broken down, and we use the components of them. But mostly what happens is that these cells, called macrophages, which are the best example of cells that perform phagocytosis, immune system cells, macrophages, they come to the place of infection, invasion, and they start eating viruses, bacteria, or any infectious particles. As we see here, they are engulfed, and they are digested, destroyed. This particle is included in a phagosome, that's what we call the vesicle, mixes or binds a lysosome, which contains digestive enzymes, and we see here, completely destroyed. And the remains are eliminated in the other side of the cell, usually, or completely digested. Or sometimes they remain inside the cytoplasm of the cell. You remember those pictures that usually we showed uh, to convince people that stop smoking and we show the lungs all black and lungs. So this is what happens when you smoke. Well, actually, we get the lungs of people that are chronically smoke. You find the spots, black spots. What are those black spots? Those are macrophages that are eating or ate for many years all the carbon particles that we smoke. And they just engulf it. They don't completely destroy them, but they remain as inclusions in their cytoplasm. So if we go to the microscopic level, we'll see macrophages with black particles in the cytoplasm, carbon particles. Sometimes the remains are ex eliminated, but sometimes they, are, they remain inside the cells. But either way, they are neutralized. They are neutralized, they are not harming the rest of the cells. This is just a process that is described in the picture of the sequence and how it happens. Examples of cells with phagocytosis are neutrophils and macrophages. Neutrophils are blood cells, but they are part of the immune system also. Whenever there's an infection, these two cells, they come to the place of infection and start eating, cleaning up all these infectious particles.
endocytosis, exocytosis, yes. The macrophages, when they sometimes they eat particles, uh -huh. and those particles are included in the small vesicles that remain in the cytoplasm of those cells. And the macrophages stay there, wherever they are, and whatever so organ. No, it will stay there. Endocytosis, exocytosis are mechanisms of transport that the membrane use. As we see here, phagocytosis is actually uh, endocytosis, where the solid particles are included. Phenocytosis is a, um, a type of endocytosis to include some particles, especially uh, compounds or molecules that are complex. And some type of endocytosis is receptor-mediated because it only happens when receptors on the membrane recognize some particles and what follows is the membrane will engulf them. That's a specialized type of endocytosis. The receptor must be present on the membrane. But all of them, you notice, is endocytosis. The membrane comes and engulfs a particle or substance and brings it in to the cytoplasm. And the exocytosis, the opposite. If there's a vesicle or some particle included as a vesicle in the cytoplasm, it will be eliminated to the outside. This example is showing what happens for secretion or elimination of substances that are produced by the cell. Like, for instance, if some hormone is produced or a neurotransmitter, that is produced in the enzyme mechanism of um, ribosomes, endoplasmic reticulum. It goes through an organ called the Golgi and packed in vesicles, and those vesicles are sent. They fuse to the membrane and they release the product. That process is exocytosis. Other important organelles to remember are cilia and flagella. Cilia which is a plural word for cilium. Flagella is a plural word for flagellum, U-M. These are mechanisms that have different purposes. The cilia, they look like brushes, like we see in this scanning microscope picture. This is an example from the trachea. In the trachea, we have this type of epithelium called pseudostratified ciliated. A bunch of cilia like this. They are projections of the plasma membrane, but they contain some proteins in the core of these finger-like projections. And they move and sweep, especially in the trachea, respiratory airways, they sweep all the particles that we breathe, carbon particles, any other virus perhaps, or bacteria. And all the time they have movement and cleaning all the respiratory airway. That's one place. 
There's another place where we have cilia in the reproductive system, the female in the uterine tubes, the fallopian tubes. It's ciliated because they have to transport the egg from the ovary towards the uterus. The flagellum, the only word, I mean the only cell of the human body with the flagellum is the sperm. <coughs> and this flagellum also has a core of special proteins. And these proteins, they are contractile. They have certain movement. And the flagellum has a specific pattern of movement that allows these cells to move very long distance. And if this cell moves, that means that it needs energy. And the energy is produced by one organ in the cell, which is the mitochondria. So this cell has a lot of mitochondria, as well as the, the flagellum that moves, or makes it move. Other type of projection of the membrane is called microvilli, which is a plural word for microvillus. Microvilli, many, microvillus, only one. Finger-like projection of the plasma membrane. The difference is microvilli are much smaller than the cilia. You don't get to see them under the microscope as we see in the previous uh, slide, the trachea ciliated. No, you don't see it like that. Microvilli are much smaller. The purpose of the microvilli is to increase the surface area for diffusion, chemical reactions and rapid diffusion, like what happens in the small intestine, large intestine, and in the kidneys. These are places where there's a lot of movement across membranes. And we need a lot of surface area to absorb all the nutrients that we're eating. That's the reason why the small intestine is so long. It is long, and plus, all this micro microvilli that increases the surface for absorption, that makes more efficient. And the kidneys, same thing. We need to eliminate many things or reabsorb other things, and we need more surface for diffusion. And again, they are much smaller than the cilia. Questions to this point? Other organelles. The organelles are found in the cytoplasm of the cell and the material or fluid where they are is called the cytosol. It includes all these, uh, all types of chemical substances that are included in that space, in that part called the cytoplasm, which are not only fluids, it's a kind of gel-like substance, but also proteins, fibrous proteins, that are part of the cytoskeleton. Inclusions, which are vesicles containing different types of substances like glycogen, melanin, triglycerides. I mentioned before that we store glycogen in the liver and muscles. Well, the cells of the liver and cells of the muscles, they contain inclusions, vesicles containing glycogen. 
and that is in the cytoplasm. Some cells of the skin are called melanocytes, and they have this pigment called melanin. Where is this? These are inclusions found in vesicles inside of the cytoplasm of these cells. Cytoskeleton is the reason why different cells have different shapes. There are special stainings that we use to determine all this network of proteins, uh, structural proteins, arranged in microtubules, microfilaments. We call them microtubules and filaments, depending on the nature and size of these proteins and how they are arranged. They determine this, this, the, the shape of the cells, and they also participate in the cell division. Mitosis, when the chromosomes travel from one pole to the center and from the center to the pole of the cell, well, they are carried through these microtubules, microfilaments, part of the cytoskeleton. And also, movement of vesicles, transfer of substances or organelles through like kind of railway system. For instance, the neurons are nervous cells and they are they have two parts, the body and the axon. The axon is a long filament that may be as long as one meter. Well, at the end of that cell, chemical substances called neurotransmitters are released. Where do they come from? They come from the cytoplasm of the cell. So they are produced in the cytoplasm and they travel along the axon, long distances. How they go? There's a kind of railway system that brings them all the way down and all the products of the metabolism are taken back to the cytoplasm for degradation. So all that is part of the cytoskeleton of the cells. Lysosomes, we mentioned them briefly when we talk about phagocytosis. They are described as primary or secondary. Primary, they contain the digestive enzymes. Secondary is when they contain partially digested contents. So when they mix with some other vesicles containing viruses, particles, and they start digesting them, that's called secondary lysis. And residual bodies are filled with waste, remains of whatever particle they destroyed. And they may be eliminated by exocytosis or may, they may remain as inclusions, as we said before. Mention to some vesicles containing special enzymes called peroxisomes. Some cells, especially the liver, they have peroxisomes because liver cells are essentially for metabolism. They are responsible to filter up all the substances that we eat or drink. The alcohol is metabolized by the liver. Thanks to the peroxisomes containing enzymes that we can break down all the molecules of ethanol quickly. Peroxisomes contain oxidases, usually enzymes called oxidases, like 
catalase is one example. This catalase converts hydrogen peroxide into water plus oxygen. Hydrogen peroxide is, uh, is toxic, but sometimes is a molecule that comes from some chemical reactions. But then quickly, they are taken by peroxisomes and converted into water plus oxygen. So our cells will not be damaged. And as well as other toxic molecules, has to be oxidized so they won't make harm to uh, liver cells or other cells. And they are included in peroxisomes. Mitochondria, that's a place where energy is produced. How we make energy? Well, the mitochondria contains a very complex system of enzymes that taking glucose molecules will convert them into ATP molecules, which are the molecules that store energy in high energy covalent bonds. They, uh, what they do is they contain enzymes, an enzyme machinery that convert glucose into molecules of ATP. And the ATP are the molecules that store energy and covalent bonds. The ribosomes are the protein makers. Summarizing the process of making proteins involves ribonucleic acid RNA that is called messenger RNA. And it's called messenger because it brings a message from the DNA. It's just a translation, a transcription. The, the, the words are well used in this case. Um, the messenger RNA brings the message from the DNA, from the nucleus. And that message is read by the ribosome. And the ribosome starts making the protein following that sequence. And translate that sequence of nucleotides into a sequence of amino acids. That's how the proteins are made. They're made by the ribosomes. ER may be of two types, rough and smooth, which is a system of membranes, endoplasmic reticulum. The word means reticulum comes from network, endoplasmic inside the cytoplasm. The network of membranes in the cytoplasm, and it's a continuous membrane connecting the cell membrane with the nuclear membrane. If there are ribosomes attached to this network of membranes, we call them rough ER. If there is no ribosomes, it's called smooth ER. So how they fit into this protein-making process? The ribosomes make the proteins. And when the proteins are made, they are sent to the rough ER, which is this network of membranes. They transport the protein just being made just made and to a different organ for processing. 
That's why the ribosomes are attached to this ER called rough ER. A representation of this is found here, and the difference. The green is showing all this endoplasmic reticulum that is a continuous with the nuclear membrane here, as we see. And all these pink circles represent the ribosomes. Rough ER, smooth ER. Some, some parts of the ER is smooth. There's no ribosomes attached to that. And they have different functions. The Golgi complex is a set of uh, membranes also, sacs. The composition is just the same as the plasma membranes. It is phospholipid by layer. They are going to receive substances that are produced or made by organelles, like following the sequence. The ribosomes make the proteins. They send them to the rough ER. And if it's a protein that has, still has to be modified, packed, and ready to send to be sent to the outside. Well, it has to go through the Golgi, this set of membranes. And in the Golgi, there are enzymes that will modify some proteins, pack them, and make them ready for use. Following this sequence, you see here, incoming transport vesicle. This may contain proteins just being made. And they enter into the Golgi into this sequence. There are a lot of enzymes here. But then they are sent in secretory vesicles. So we go in this direction. And this secretory vesicle may reach the plasma membrane and release the product by exocytosis. Those are the, uh, the organelles organelles that are relevant to uh, remember and, and keep these uh, uh, highlightings for future chapters. Now going to the nucleus now. Nucleus and gene expression. Nucleus, you know, contains the DNA, all the genetic material there. Organized in chromosomes, there is a membrane, there is a nuclear envelope that contains pores which allow the transport of substances like messenger RNA. We say the messenger RNA brings the message from the DNA. Yet it comes from inside the nucleus and comes out to the cytoplasm through the pores, the nuclear pores. All cells, all cells have a nucleus. But the red blood cells don't have a nucleus. Fact is that they did have a nucleus, but then they lost the nucleus. Mature red blood cells, they don't have a nucleus. They don't need it. They don't divide. They just carry hemoglobin. But during the development, when they were young, they had nucleus, and that nucleus containing DNA and chromosomes contains all the program for development. And once they reach mature stage, the nucleus is lost. They won't divide. They live for 120 days and they, they are removed from the blood. But the rest of the cells, all them need a nucleus. The nucleus uh, dictates all the functions 
of the self. So these are the two words that I said when we talk about proteins, transcription and translation, because that's the way that the DNA express, expresses the information. Genes. What are genes? Genes are segments of DNA. Segments of DNA that contain information. How that information is organized? It's just a sequence of nucleotides. The sequence GCTAG may mean something. Who understands that language? Well, that language has to be first transcribed by the messenger RNA, brought to the cytoplasm, and then be translated by the ribosome. And the ribosome translates that language into a sequence of amino acids known as protein. Genetic expression is going through these two processes, transcription and translation. Here we see it here, an example of a segment of DNA. Different colors would mean uh, different segments of a gene. And these names, intron and exons, introns are the red segments, exons the blue segments, there is a transcription start and there's a transcription stop signal. So let's say when we need to make some protein, well, the DNA has to send that information so we can make that protein. How that happens? Well, the initial transcription will happen here. This is RNA molecule that will actually transcribe the information, copy the information from the DNA. And we see it's a copy. Blue, red, blue, red, with the same segments, exactly the same, same segments. But then what happens is splicing. All the red segments, called introns, they will be removed from that RNA. This is RNA. until we get this pure blue which is the finished transcription product containing only exons and this messenger RNA will go out to the cytoplasm and be read by the ribosomes what we have at the end is the finished protein that process is called gene expression, transcription and translation. Now why, why the red segments have to be removed? Well, that has a long story, which is not well understood. It's a mixture of uh, development plus evolution plus differentiation of a species and purpose. Very different topic. But the fact is, this is what happens. Well, summarizing, DNA is transcribed. Messenger RNA has that information, brings it to the cytoplasm, and the ribosome reads that information and translates it into a sequence of proteins or amino acids, which is a protein. Okay, can, can, you, can you say that again, please? Yeah, DNA is transcribed or copied into an RNA messenger. 
And then as an RNA, messenger RNA will bring the message outside to the cytoplasm and be read by the ribosome. The ribosome translates that information into a sequence of amino acids, and that's what we know as a protein. Nucleola. Inside the nucleus, we see this nucleola, which is a very a granule, like a dot inside the nucleus, a dark region. And this is DNA that codes for ribosomes. This is where the ribosomes are made and how the ribosomes are made. The ribosome it contains RNA, ribosomal RNA, plus proteins. And that they are made or coded there in that segment of DNA known as a nucleolus. So that sequence that we just explained of transcription of proteins or expression of genes is what makes us define what a genome is and what a proteome is. We sometimes hear about the genome of a species or the human genome project. But the genome refers to all the genes, all the groups of genes. It's just saying with DNA, but expressed in terms of genes. Genome, all the genes in a particular individual, all the set of genes. And the proteome is all the proteins that are produced by that genome. And that simple concept is what drives all the research in uh, genetics and uh, translation and transcription, understanding diseases and uh, try to intervene and in detecting some genes that code for some types of cancer, for instance. Uh, we can go either way. I'll give you an example. Some types of lymphomas, which are cancers of blood cells, lymph nodes specifically, these cells, which are malignant cells, they make, a pro they make proteins. And sometimes we can, we actually, we do molecular studies and we detect the presence of those proteins in the blood. By detecting the presence of those proteins, we can trace it back. What we're doing is just capturing the proteome, some specific protein. And if we know the sequence of amino acids, then we can go back and translate it back to the initial information. So we can go back and say, if this is alanine, valine, cytosine, that is the result of these other nucleotides, A, C, T, G, Z, A, U. And that, going back, we get to the DNA information. And we say, okay, this is the gene that is expressing this protein, which is a mutant gene. And that's the reason of this particular cancer. So we get to that detail knowing this two concepts of genome and proteome. Or we can go in the other way, in the other way around. We know what a, that a gene is that has a mutation, and we can say, okay, this is going to lead to um, production of defective proteins. And these are just terms that um, we use, like phenotype, or well, phenotype is the expression of all these genomes. So the sequence is the genome goes transcribed, translated into pro the proteome. And the proteome, all the set of proteomes will make the phenotype. And that's what we know as um, dark hair or 
uh, a heart with particular condition. Chromatin. This term refers to chromatin comes from chromos, I mean color. The story is that the first time they saw the nucleus under the microscope and they captured some cells in mitosis and cell division and they saw these structures, chromosomes, and they named them as chromosomes. Chromosomes, chromos, colorosome, bodies. Bodies with color, uh, bodies with color, and the chromosomes, which are made of, and they look, took a deeper look, and, and they saw a long, very uh, fiber, long fiber as a structure. So that fiber is belongs to the chromosomes, so let's name it as chromatin. And what the chromatin is, it's just a DNA. It's just a DNA arranged in this way. Picture it's showing very well how this is. You see from the sequence of nucleotides, sequence of nucleotides here, double helix, and all of a sudden you see this. Because the DNA is wrapped in proteins, in proteins in this way, called nucleosomes, and packed. And you keep going and you find all this arranged like in chromosomes. There are some books that tell you what is the distance that is stretched segment of DNA will cover, and it's an amazing number, but it all is packed in, uh, in this way in the nucleus. So think about the DNA in this way, when a gene has to be expressed, what has to, be, what has to happen? The chromatin is condensed when the cell is not expressed in any gene. So it's all packed like this. And we see like condensed chromatin, so very dark and well-stained under the microscope. But at some point, this chromatin will be loosened and it starts stretching the, 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 the fiber or the segment of DNA by different reactions like acetylations. Well, we see now an open structure and with segments of the DNA that are able to be read and that's when the gene expression will start. So when a cell enters into mitosis or in active processes, we see the chromatin not condensed. We see them not so well stained because it's active producing, expressing the genes. And then after that ends, the chromatin is repacked and condensed again. That's the same process that we saw before, how the transcription and translation happens. We gave specific names here. The first, the first copy from the DNA by transcription is a pre-messenger RNA, like a precursor molecule. The DNA has, has to be refined by splicing the introns, and we have the final messenger RNA. And we saw that before, it's so just a different way. 
And this diagram is showing how the RNA is being copied from one strand of DNA and how, how the information is read by complementarity. If there is a C in the DNA, well, the one that pairs is a G. If there's an A, it will pair with a U because this is RNA. In RNA, there's uracil. So then we have the information here. All this information, this is what the messenger RNA is. And these are the types of RNA that we mentioned before. We're just adding one more here, which is a pre-messenger RNA, but the other three are the ones that we mentioned in the previous uh, segment. Messenger RNA, transfer RNA, and ribosomal RNA. We talk about the messenger. What is the transfer RNA? Transfer, as the word says, it transfers, carries amino acids. They are found in the cytoplasm, the transfer RNA molecules, and they are joined to an amino acid. They carry amino acids. And they transfer the amino acids into the new protein molecule that is being built. That's why it's called transfer RNA. And the ribosomal is part of the ribosome. There is a particular type of RNA called interference RNA. And this RNA is described differently because it is seen to affect the process of uh, synthesis of protein. And it's basically regulation. That's why it's called interference. It's called short interference, micro interference, we should understand this in terms of regulation. Okay, going to more a uh, little bit more detail of how the protein synthesis happens, especially at the level of uh, transfer of RNA and building of the protein. This is again the same thing, but in a different way. Transcription and translation, we see the messenger RNA and the protein finally being built. And what is shown here is that DNA sequence, messenger RNA, complementary bases, A with U, C with G, C with G. But then when the ribosome will build the protein, this messenger RNA will be read in triplets, like three pieces of three nucleotides. And that's called codon. And each codon, which means the triplet, three uh, nucleotide, will express or mean one particular amino acid. So different codons, different sequences of these nucleotides means a different amino acid. And what, that's what the ribosome does read this cotton and say so this UGG is for tryptophan. So tryptophan must be added here. What's the next one? UUU, that codes for phenylalanine. So that amino acid has to be uh, added here. And that's the way the ribosome starts building the protein. 
And when the rivals decide we need a tryptophan now, transfer RNA brings that tryptophan to the molecule. This is a way that the transfer RNA is um, understood, the structure. It contains a part called anti-codon because it's going to match the codon, again, by complementarity. If the codon is GCC, this transfer RNA will have a CGG that will match here. When it matches, it will bring the amino acid, which is here. And this amino acid will be part of the structure, will be transferred into the protein molecule that has been built. Or we can show it in a different way here, how a polypeptide is built. You will see a different representation. We have the ribosomes reading the messenger RNA. And this codon AAA matches with the anti-codon UUU that belongs to this transfer RNA, which is bound to a lysine amino acid. And this lysine amino acid will be added to the molecule in this way. Amino acids are added, and the transfer RNA is loose to bind another amino acid. The transfer RNA brings the amino acids and starts building the, the protein. Questions to this point? Yes? Are we going to be tested at such a you should remember from here are the concepts of complementarity, what nucleotide matches with with nucleotide. Understand the process of gene expression, transcription, and translation, what it means, and what are the steps, like DNA, messenger RNA, and transfer RNA. Uh, uh, yeah, those are the main things here. Notice these pictures and graphs are to illustrate that process, but we're not going into detail of like, say the structure of this transfer RNA. I mean, like, this is more complex. It has ester bond, intramolecular base pairing, and all that, which is, that's not the purpose of, of this part. And this is showing how the ribosomes build the protein molecule and send it into the endoplasmic reticulum, the raphiar. So this fiber has been built here, and the protein is now inside the raphiar. A long chain of amino acids, and then it's modified, packed, and probably sent outside the cell, maybe, or perhaps inside the cell is used for different, different purposes. And that's why the Golgi complex fits, because those proteins that are just been built, many of them have to be modified modified, packed, ready to be sent somewhere else for some particular function. Now let's see how the DNA is made and how that fits into the cell division and how can how that can affect different um, cells and cell lines. 
before a cell divides, the DNA must replicate. Understanding the process of cell division as one cell through different processes that will give rise to two daughter cells which are identical to the first cell. And for that to happen, if a cell has a number of chromosomes or an amount of DNA, the daughter cells must have exactly the same amount or number of chromosomes. And therefore, the DNA has to replicate, duplicate cells in order to be distributed equally to two daughter cells. There are different types of enzymes that make this possible. Helicases, from the name you can tell, helix, helicases, they break the hydrogen bonds that are binding the DNA strands. So they can be loose and open so they can be read or transcribed. As we see here. The double strand is open, it creates like a fork, and new molecules will be added, new nucleotides will be added from this, from this one DNA, both strands open, and more nucleotides are added to each half, and now we end up with a double molecule of DNA, two molecules of DNA. That's the process of replication. And the enzyme that adds new nucleotides is called DNA polymerase. Helicases and polymerases are the enzymes that replicate the DNA for cell division. So that happens when a cell will go into division. The cell has a life cycle, which is described with this graph that includes all these stages we can start with G1, it stands for growth one. G1, one of the characteristics here, the centrioles replicate, which, which is a set of uh, microtubules, proteins, and the cytoplasm in preparation for the, the division. Then comes this S phase. This is the place where the time where the DNA replicates, <coughs> gets ready for cell division. And in G2, final growth ready to enter into cell division or mitosis. And mitosis have different stages, ending up with the production of two daughter cells. This cycle is different for different types of cells, different duration, I mean, but all of them have the same stages. Some cells may last years, some cells may have the cycle in hours, like the white blood cells in the in the blood, the life cycle is maybe as fast as 24 hours. When we, are, when we have an infection, we need a lot of cells, and those cells go and they have to reproduce and replicate quickly. Or we may have cells that will last for a long time, like the muscular cells. So the interface includes all these three G1, S, and G2. So all this is called interface. G1, S, and G2. 
and this is the whole life of a cell before going to cell division. So, lots of things happen during this time. RNA synthesis, because the cell is an active life. That's the active part, active part of the life of the cell. G1, the cell is performing all the functions. Like if it's a liver cell, we'll start degrading many things from the blood, processing nutrients and all that. And there are a series of signals that will tell the cell, okay, you're done with this phase, now you go into the next phase. And those signals are molecules called cyclings. One example is cyclin D. What's the importance of this? This regulation parts may fail and they are implicated in some types of cancers because cancer is a problem of cell division and when there's a dysregulation of the life cycle cancer may be the consequence transcription factors checkpoints all these are regulation elements p53 is a transcription factor that may tell the cell, hey, you are having a problem, and so you will not go further, and it has to be destroyed. S phase. This is a place where the DNA replicates. And the G2 is preparation for the cell division or mitosis. The chromosomes will get condensed. And the chromosomes is arranged, are arranged and ready for cell division. Besides the G1, G2, there's a phase known as G0, which is only present in some cells, like the nervous cells, like the neurons. What it means G0? G0 means that the cell is active, it's performing all the functions, but it's not going to cell division. It will get like stopped in that phase. And for a, for a lifetime, the neurons, they are they don't go into cell division. I'm sorry, and what happens when they're not going on cell division? They keep working. They are active, but they just don't go into mitosis. The DNA will not replicate. It will stay in G0. Remember the sequence is G1, S, G2. If then G0, it's active, but it never go into S, so the DNA will never replicate. Nervous system, nervous system. The muscle cell can divide, but uh, not so fast as the nervous cells, and they last for a long time. The other concept is cell death. This word means cell death, but programmed cell death, apoptosis. Well, there are enzymes that mediate this. They are called C spaces or caspases, but 
apoptosis as defined is programmed cell death. How we do this? For instance, when we have an infection, cells from the immune system come to fight against an infection. But then when the cells, macrophages, we mentioned some of them, neutrophils, other cells, they kill bacteria, they eat bacteria. More bacteria come in. We send more cells. But then there's a moment at which those cells, after eating the bacteria, they have to be removed. They are not going to stay there for a long time. They have to be recycled. And each cell comes with an instruction. Go fight, eliminate the bacteria, and then kill yourself. Self-destruction. That's called apoptosis. It's self-destruction, programmed self-death. Because purpose is completed. Goal achieved, fight the disease, okay, you're done. Apoptosis. We have to differentiate that from necrosis which is also cell death. But in this case, the cells are not supposed to die. They die because they lack support. They are deprived from blood supply, for instance. Like in a heart attack, coronary artery from the heart is obstructed, the cells don't receive blood supply and they die. We say those cells went into necrosis. We don't say apoptosis. Apoptosis is programmed cell death. Necrosis is not expected cell, not expected death. But it happens because of different lack of blood supply, injury, infection, not programmed. Yeah. What about gangrene? What's the difference the necrosis? Gangrene is in a stage of necrosis. Yeah, it's just that it's really bad many cells, many tissues are actually the ones that are necrotic and uh, that, that carry other consequences besides infection. But it's a type of necrosis. So cell division is mainly, mainly means mitosis. Mitosis goes to different stages and you don't have to remember all the details of each stage just bringing this concept of mitosis or cell division to think about the process of one cell replicating the DNA and giving place to two daughter cells. But we have to make a difference. We have to make a difference uh, with uh, meiosis, and that's what we com comes after. But before that, a word about telomeres. Telomere is a segment of a chromosome. It's a segment of DNA. Let me show you here in this place of a chromosome. A telomere is one of the segments of the arms of the chromosome that contains a particular segment of DNA. Why I brought this is because the telomeres are involved in the ability to divide Meaning that every time the DNA is replicated, that segment called telomere is like chipped, it's lost. When you know the DNA is very long, sequence of nucleotides, and sometimes some of the 
genes or segments, if we lose them, that will not make much difference because the chromosome of DNA will readjust. But then this telomere, every time the cell replicates, segment, a little segment of nucleotides called the telomere is lost. And if these telomeres are damaged in a very serious way, then we'll activate this transcription factor that we mentioned before, P53. It's part of the life cycle of the cell. And that will induce or cycle arrest or apoptosis. There are a lot of research done in telomeres. And in some experiments, what they did was to uh, preserve that telomere and not allow telomere to be lost. And those cells, and those cells are called the eternal cells because they replicate and replicate and replicate without limit. And that in relation with the telomere. So the, the fact... I'm sorry, which ones are the eternal cells? The ones that keep the telomere after cell replication. And that brings another, another thing because we may think that's the reason why we get old. We lose telomeres and our cells will start happening, uh, suffering problems and uh, uh, they get damaged and uh, everything comes like when we get old. Some cells will not replicate no more like skin cells, collagen fibers on the connective tissue, we get wrinkles, that explains many things. So that's one of the theories of aging process by loosening the telomere, that every time the cell replicates. And related with cell division, we have to make these two differences, the difference between these two terms, hypertrophy and hyperplasia. Especially we'll mention this when we get to the muscle, muscular system, how the cells get hypertrophy or hyperplastic. The difference is shown here. In hypertrophy, in hypertrophy, there's an increase in the cell size. By hyperplasia, it's an increase in the number of cells. Like the graph is showing very well. If you have four cells, if they suffer cell hypertrophy, there's still four cells. It's just that each cell is bigger. That's what happens with the muscle when we work out. Hyperplasia, if those four cells go into hyperplasia, there's not enough four cells anymore. There are six. In either way, the volume is increased, but the mechanism is different. Of hyperplasia? Uh -huh. Hyperplasia is, for instance, a tumor. You develop a tumor, uh, and you see what you see, let's say, in the skin is a little bump, or like a pimple, or nodule. That means that if you go to the microscopic level, what you see is an increasing number of cells. But if you work out and make these biceps like this size, if you go to the microscopic level, what you see is hypertrophy not hyperplasia. Is that the same for the adipose cells? That's interesting. In adipose cells, 
what happens is hypertrophic. But if the adipose cell is stimulated early in life, there is hyperplasia and hypertrophy. Like if a kid, let's say five, six year old, the diet is rich in carbohydrates and lipids. Well, yeah, the adipose cells will start increasing in size, getting more triglycerides, more fats. But that stimulus will make sense. This kid is still growing, will stimulate adipose cells to go into hyperplasia, and there will be more cells, more adipocytes, to store more fat, which is not good in all cases because when this kid reaches adolescence, they will have more number of cells. And later, sometimes it will be harder for them to lose weight because they have more number of cells than necessarily just bigger cells. That's interesting, and yeah, we'll, we'll, see, we'll see that again in nutrition, yeah. So especially with hypertrophy in adolescent in early life, but then develops to hyperplasia. And finally, the difference with meiosis, meiosis, the purpose is to create cells with half number of chromosomes. If we have 46, well, the, by meiosis, we create cells that have 23 pairs of chromosomes. And the purpose is that these cells will get together and be the origin of a new individual. And this is called sexual reproduction. The gametes, that's how we call these cells, sperm and egg. Or also called ova for ovum and sperm. This process only happens in ovaries and testes, and there are specialized cells for this. When we get to the reproductive system, we'll talk about these two processes called spermatogenesis and oogenesis, and we'll see how the meiosis happens in each, in each case. But common thing is, as I said, one cell that has 46 chromosomes will give place to cells that have 40, I mean 23 pairs of chromosomes. So or 23 chromosomes. Because at the end, this is what we will have. This is called a karyotype. This is a study of the chromosomes. If you get any cell of your body and you're able to isolate the chromosomes from the nucleus, you will see this. Pairs of chromosomes, 23 pairs or 46 chromosomes. Homologous chromosomes. Like if you see the pair number one, they are exactly the same size, the same regions, and they're exactly the same. Because one of these comes from our mother and the other one from our father. And that's what we have as part of our cells. And then when we make gametes, sperm and eggs, what we do is split all these pairs. And we'll make cells that have only 23 chromosomes, not pairs, only 23 chromosomes. And that's a process of meiosis. As I said, you don't have to go to the detail of every single stage and everything. That's part of uh, biology, uh, general biology course. Finally, the last fact to mention here is this process called crossing over. In one of the phases called metaphase one, there is a genetic recombination. Some of these chromosomes 
will mix information, will exchange information. And that's why the diversity, like all the sperm cells and all the eggs that someone produces, they will not be exactly the same. There will be genes recombined as part of different chromosomes. And that's why siblings then don't look alike. They look different. Maybe some similarity, but not exactly the same. Because the two different sperm mixed with two different eggs, and there's a diversity of genetic recombination there. Okay. Questions to this point. Okay, let's have a 15 minute and then come back for the next segment. <laughs>